Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Jess Phillips and welcome back to Yours Sincerely. Now, most of you might know I'm an MP in Birmingham, but what you might not know is that I've always been a prolific letter writer and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Elizabeth Day is the author of five novels and the Sunday Times best-selling memoir, How to Fail. She is also the host of the iTunes chart-topping podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. And her debut book, Scissors, Paper, Stone, won a Betty Trask Award. Elizabeth is also an award-winning journalist. Her new book, Friendaholic, is out now and is the story of one woman's journey to understand why she's addicted to friendship. Today, I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. Hello, Elizabeth. How are you? Hello, Jess. I'm so well. It's so nice to be chatting to you again. It's so lovely. I often listen to uh, the podcast that we, uh, when I came on How to Fail, um, because I like to sometimes remind myself of saying nice things about my husband, because I was very kind about my husband when I came on your podcast. And sometimes I feel like, you know, when life is tough and you're just, you know, you're you're dealing with the logistics of life, I think, oh, remember how much you love your husband. (laughs) That is such a beautiful thing to hear. You genuinely sometimes read listen to you yeah that is so uh, i feel like i've performed a useful (laughs) function indeed it is like a counseling session for me i get to be like oh yes you have a lovely husband it's not so bad um you were amazing on how to fail though and you were one of the early adopters so thank you because you came on one of the early seasons and you genuinely went there with your failures and some people don't and you were just really like in an interview when people say like you know what what, what's your downside and they're like i'm just too on time yeah exactly (laughs) I, d- I can't delegate because I just want to do everything myself. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this podcast is all about letter writing. Are you much of a letter writer? I imagine you're from the generation that was uh, much yes. of a letter writer. Yes. It was drilled into me by my mother that I had to write thank you letters uh-huh. whenever I got a birthday present or a Christmas present. I hated it. Yeah, it's so tedious, wasn't so it? I make my children do it, though. But it's... 
And now I'm really <laughs> grateful. And now I've turned into one of those adults that she always used to tell me existed, who did actually appreciate a thank you letter. And I was like, why would they care? Why would they care if I've drawn a picture? And she's like, honestly, people really like it. And I've turned into one of those adults who loves getting letters myself from my godchildren when I've given yeah. them a present. So I've turned into that person. So yes, she drilled it into me that it was really important to write letters. And then I got into the habit of it. And I grew up in an era without email, without mobile phones. So when I did get sent on those school exchanges that I think happily have gone out of fashion now. I know, I was like, it's a safeguarding nightmare. Can you believe? <laughs> My exchange was, I mean, as, as close to, you know, basically the scene of a kidnapping. Did uh, you? Know? It was I just... had some really traumatic ones. Shipped off to Leipzig. <laughs> Barely a second thought. I mean, and also just like nobody. I mean, we had loads of exchange students stay in our house as well. I don't remember. <laughs> any safeguarding going on or like checking that my parents weren't like you know putting them right. basically into like a trafficking ring and some <laughs> of the stuff we got up to with the exchange people and or in uh, while we were on exchange yeah i don't feel like it would have been school sanctioned they don't happen anymore do they i don't think it does my, my children yeah. have never been offered right. an exchange <laughs> yeah so but anytime i got sent away or um, what it was away for length of period of time or went on holiday, I would send letters or postcards. And so now um, I don't do it as often because we do have the privilege of email and, and <laughs> smartphones, but I do still write thank you notes. Um, my handwriting's got a lot worse. You know, everyone's has, but I think there is something profound about a letter that when someone is going through a really difficult time or perhaps they have lost someone, yeah. I would always rather write and put pen to paper. I think in, in the case of death, yes, definitely writing down your feelings, it, it's just too impersonal. Yeah. I mean, you can send people WhatsApp messages and be like, I'm thinking of you and stuff, but there is just something about... And often, after my mum had died, I definitely sat afterwards and read through all the cards and things. It isn't... Because it's not like Christmas where you want to put them all up to decorate the house. No. <laughs> no. It's, it's got a different sense about <laughs> different it, the vibe. death of your mother. Oh. Um, but definitely... In them as well, it's like thought. It isn't like a Christmas card or a birthday card where you have just written, like, you know, the sort of standard platitudes. It is like genuine memories about a person or what they meant to them. So mm. I think that that probably is in the future going to probably be the last bastion of letter writing and maybe the child thank you letter. That's sad, isn't it? it? Is quite, and that and bills. Yeah, because <laughs> I... When my grandparents died, there was this whole stash of letters between them that was so romantic and beautiful, and it meant that their grandchildren could chart the course of their relationship in a way that we won't really be able to anymore. No, mine will be just things like get toilet roll. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just like messages between me and my husband. A 10-minute voice note about Love Island. Yeah. Like... <laughs> it's funny, actually, though, uh, you know, and what that means in the record of history. Obviously, we are talking on the day that uh, Matt Hancock, the one-time health secretary, has had all of his WhatsApp messages yeah. uh, released into uh, the press. And it made me go back over the time with my staff about what we were talking about Um with regard to the care home testing and PPE and stuff during that time. And actually what I was pleased to find, even though it doesn't feel like as much of a historical record, there's a whole section about care home testing that then has got this whole conversation about Rusty Lee being on the chase <laughs> in the middle of it. So it seems <laughs> slightly less prophetic. Um, but there was, a, there was at least a record of history of some of the things yes. that were going on at the time. But you're right, it doesn't seem as... There's a thing called Letters Live, uh, which 
which I yeah. actually did um, for Choose Love. And like, you know, like George Bernard Shaw's letters and, and the you know, the letters of the Mitford sisters and stuff. It yeah. does just feel like in, in 100 years time, that is going to be WhatsApp messages with like clinking beer jugs emoji. Yes, <laughs> like a Kermit the Frog gif. But I, do, <laughs> but I do think the British Library does an email archive. I think okay. I remember reading about that a few years ago and being like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, somebody <laughs> Our is, words are saved. Yeah, posterity. that's it. Somebody is going to be keeping it. Um, do you have any letters of note from anybody like really like famous or ones that you kept that really mattered to you because like yeah. it was for a job or anything? I actually do. I have a few, and it's because I'm going to sound like... And I know it pertains to one of the letters that I said that I'd write, like such a precocious little brat. <laughs> but when I was a child, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist and I knew that I wanted to write. And I wrote to lots of people in the public eye and lots of newspaper editors. One of them was Roger Alton, who went on to edit The Observer, and at the time he was editor of the, the art section of The Guardian. And he sent me such a lovely letter back, taking me seriously. I'd written this piece about Forrest Gump, which had just come out at the cinema. And he was like, you made some really good points, some of which I agree with. Um, I just think too much time has elapsed to print this, but keep in touch. It was so lovely, and I still have that to this day. And then years after that, I was at secondary school, and my French teacher, I found out, used to teach Jeremy Paxman. <laughs> I was like, oh, do you think he'd agree to be interviewed by me for the local paper? And astonishingly, Jeremy Paxman did agree to be interviewed by me. And I did it over the phone. And he was, again, astonishingly kind to me. The piece ran... That has not always been my experience of Jeremy well, Paxman. I know. You must have had a totally different <laughs> no, experience. To be fair, he's always been fair. <laughs> OK, so it ran in the Malvern Gazette. You'll know Malvern. I do it's know same, Malvern yeah. very well. And then uh, Jeremy Paxman was so nice about it, he invited me up to have a day in the Newsnight studios, and he's always been lovely. Anyway, he sent me, I don't know if it counts as a letter, a fax. And he's... Oh, my God, that's even more true, a fax. <laughs> He sent me a fax and it was so, so generous. And it was like, you know, if you ha really have decided on a career in journalism, I'm sure you'll make a go of it. I'm slightly reticent about recommending you because I'm sure you'll be replacing me in no time. All the best, Jeremy Paxman. And it was one of my most prized belongings. And recently we had a flood, like when there were all those heavy rains, oh, we had a flood. Yeah. And all of my things that I'd stored that had meant so much to me, including Jeremy Paxman facts, Jeremy Paxman's facts, just sort of got destroyed. So oh, no. I've still got the piece of paper, but all of the words have faded, so you oh. can't read it anymore. You ever have to write a police statement? It is literally like you're writing it in 1920. Uh, you do it all completely by hand, uh, and when they make a mistake, you have to do that thing where you initial it and things, and you have to sign at the bottom of each page. Um, but it is, as a writer, I'm always really disappointed by the statements that I've given to the police because they make me sound like a child who's been to visit <laughs> London Zoo at uh, the weekend and has written a school report. On Monday, I went to... And I'm yeah. like that. I, I am a best-selling yeah. author. You are. Uh, this <laughs> is not... This has got no flair. <laughs> and that will go into the historical records. Exactly. <laughs> They'll be like that, Jess Phillips. I didn't, somebody else must have written her books because this Wait, is dreadful. How many police statements have you given? Oh, hundreds <laughs> in my life. Is that in your professional capacity yeah well uh, both as a witness um obviously uh, for lots and lots of cases i am the first responder to uh, a case of domestic or sexual violence and as the first person who gets told something often you'll call for evidence so i have to give oh, uh, witness goodness. statements in in that circumstance but also you know people attack me all the time don't they like people are horrible and harass me and stalk me and things i know i'm saying that as if it's nothing uh, i recognize that it is but it's just something i have got used to yeah so i'm yeah, sorry they, that you've uh, had to get used to it i know but the worst thing about it 
is how long it takes to make a police statement. <laughs> right. It's tedious. The level of work we expect victims in this country to do. It took, once took me eight hours. Wow. Eight hours to give a police statement and go through all the evidence and stuff. It's just like, it's a lot of work being a victim. Uh, we've surely got to try and change that. Yeah. So, uh, I've asked you to think about three people you would want to send a letter to, uh, and the first one is someone who means the world to you, so who is that going to be? That's my best friend, Emma, who is not only my best friend, but a qualified psychotherapist. I mean, that's always (laughs) helpful. It's the best combination ever, and we met in Freshers' Week at university, and we've seen each other through some of our darkest times and some of our highest, highest celebrations. And in that time, she is retrained as a therapist. And it's just such an amazing resource for me to have. Like, yeah. she's, all, she's the person I have the most fun with who makes me laugh the most, joint equal with my husband, I should say, disclaimer. Um, yeah, but he yeah. came on the scene later. Total disclaimer in that just because you pick one person doesn't mean you hate everybody else in thank your life. You. It's not thank a zero-sum game. OK, thank you, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> you understand my psychology. Yeah. Um, but she also calls me out on my bullshit. So she complete, she knows me so deeply and she also knows me better than I know myself in many ways. Yeah. So she's able to be incredibly supportive and compassionate, but she's also so wise that I have turned to her again and again. I did it this morning. I was like, am I right to think this? Did I do something wrong? And she's so brilliant to check in with, and that's who I want I to I often to. Um, think that um, when I... When I'm worried about my uh, friends, often, if, especially if they are single and unmarried, is the when people don't have a sounding board. Like, if you're alone with yeah. your thoughts, I would be an absolute mess if I didn't have someone to go, Mass- you're being a massive dickhead right now, love. Yes. Uh, or, like, just... just to, Even if what they say you don't agree with, just saying it to somebody and hearing their opinion... Definitely. I think you'd be driven mad without those sounding boards in your life. Yeah, well, there have been those studies, haven't there, that being lonely and having no friends is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It actually shortens your lifespan. And I feel like I've just (laughs) deliberately done this seamless link into my book, which I didn't intend. (laughs) No, do it. I like it. (laughs) But I do quote this in my book, Friendaholic, Confessions (laughs) of a Friendship Addict, because um, whilst that's very interesting, it's also bad for your health to have too many friends. Oh, gosh. It it can actually increase incidences of depression because you're constantly struggling to meet everyone's needs and to keep up with everyone. You get to a certain age, though, don't you, where you found the sweet spot, because I definitely had too many friends. Uh, And then... um... I do know when I meet people, I think I really like you, but there just isn't a vacancy. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. And how old are you now? I'm 41. Yeah, I think it's your 40s. I'm 44 and mm. I've definitely found that. And actually, the the key to a contented life is finding that sweet spot. And Emma is just someone who's always been in my inner circle, always will be, and is someone I can go to whatever I need. And I feel so hashtag blessed to have her. I really, really do. And like you were saying earlier, being able to check in, I've posted some stuff on Instagram that some people have taken exception to. And I will turn to Emma and be like, am I actually an arsehole? (laughs) Please tell me. And she is able to say either yes or no. And I know that she always has my best interests at heart and I trust her more than I trust myself. So 
I've got to say though the the whole Instagram thing when especially you know when it's being used in a professional environment it has got to be just a hotbed for your friends to be able to take the piss out of you. <laughs> You're so right, especially for politicians. I mean, you're so restricted as to what you can and can't do. My mates are like, this is not how you talk. Like, <laughs> like you don't think this. You've got to say this. Um, you know, they will take the the sort. You know, hashtag taking the piss out of you constantly whenever I have to put anything that is even slightly gauche on uh, Instagram. <laughs> Do you remember the early days of Liz Truss before she was prime minister and she built up this Instagram oh, following? Oh, good, yeah. Yeah, and it was so weird. It the was Instagram the weirdest was... <laughs> ever. A lot of it was about Taylor Swift, I seem to recall. <laughs> and picnic, so it was like, her hashtag was like, picnic. It was so <laughs> weird. Uh, so, Emma, you met her at yes. university. Yes. Um, and often those ones you make in Freshers' Week, they don't they necessarily don't survive. No. It's like when you first start school, you've got, like, you get mates with everyone and then yeah. you, you realise the people that you just happen to be sat on a table next to. That is how <laughs> friendship is so arbitrary, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Especially, like, in those circumstances, you live in my flat, we will be friends forever. Exactly. Weird. It's, it is very interesting when you look at why people make friends because when you're children, you don't have that much agency over your own life. And so it is very much determined by the letter that your surname starts with yeah. and whether you're sitting next to... Um, Emily Carter at nursery <laughs> school or geographical location or whether your parents are mates. And so there's not a lot of choice, but the older you get, and I suppose part of what I'm really passionate about talking about in terms of friendship and being a, a recovering friendaholic is that we all need to get clearer as adults as to what we mean when we say friendship. It's such a broad and diffuse term yeah. that the problem is that sometimes you might fall into a friendship by being friendly and that person has vastly different expectations of what that relationship will mean in their in their yeah. lives. So they will want someone who can have a weekly lunch, who will phone you every day. And I'm not going to be that friend. I'm not I'm not I, gonna be that wife. No. <laughs> A weekly lunch should be a big ask from my husband. As previously established, I can give you a 10-minute voice note on Love Island, but nothing else, OK? Yeah. So if you want that. Yeah, so um, I met Emma in Freshers' Week, and actually the funny thing was was that the first time I saw her, she was in the college bar, blonde, long hair, slogan T-shirt, surrounded by a gaggle of admiring men, just making them all laugh. And I was like, we are not, not going to get on. Yeah, what a bitch. I know. So not my type. And then I went across and she started talking to me and we started quoting Austin Powers' dialogue to each other. And she genuinely is, like, utterly hilarious. And I loved... We just connected immediately and I was like, well, my first impression could not have been more yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. And since then, it's so interesting because her hair was actually dyed blonde and she's gone back to her natural brunette. And the older we get, the more people say that we look like sisters and that's just a really lovely thing. Oh, that's nice, you see. So she was the hottie and then it turns out you're the hottie. Well, that's very nice of you, Jess. <laughs> we're, we're all hotties. Aren't we all the hotties? Yes. <laughs> um, so you've been friends with her since you were like 18 then? Uh, yeah, 19 because I took a gap year. Oh, and if you want off. to hear about how I found myself, <laughs> very willing to go there. Uh, yeah, my, no, 19. My son is about to take a gap year. And I'll tell you what, it's different to what it was in the 90s of, like, I don't know, going and painting a school in Africa, which seemed pointless. Yeah. Um, is now, it, it now is largely, I think, sleeping. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Is I don't he know going anywhere? 
I don't know if he's going anywhere. There's no sort of gumption. It's just, it's, the, the world is different for the 18-year-old than it was in the 90s, basically. Yeah. It's a... It's a in some ways, a bigger world. In some ways, it seems much smaller. I know what you mean, and I wonder if that's partly because of the rise of so much communication. Twenty-four hour communication. Yes, that some teenagers feel understandably fearful about leaving home because they're so used to having people around all of the time. Whereas when we were children... You were desperate to go, You were desperate you? to go. And also, I think maybe your parents didn't know as much about what might happen to you <laughs> when you went... Not a clue. To Cape, as I did, I went to Cape Town for six months when I was 18. And it was great, but it was also quite dangerous. dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> but all I had at that stage, Hotmail had just been invented. So yeah. I was okay. And I, actually, that's when I sent letters. I would send like airmail. Remember those airmail oh, yeah, envelopes? Oh yeah, the things you had to stick. Yeah, like sort of potato skin. Anyway, I hope I hope your son oh, does I'm something. Sure. <laughs> do something. I mean, don't worry about him, and he's incredibly privileged. I, I think uh-huh. he's probably going to be fine. Uh-huh. Um, the uh, so um, and Emma and you presumably. I mean, all your adult lives have had this relationship she's seen me through a lot so my 30s were a very very um active decade in the sense that I got married to the wrong person I got divorced I tried and failed to have children I started having fertility treatment which was ultimately unsuccessful um and leaving my ex-husband was a, a huge thing as it is for anyone who Mm. has gone through a separation or a divorce of some kind, you do feel like a huge failure. Mm. You feel you failed at this massive thing that society has told you you should be succeeding at. And you had a big party to make everybody come and watch it. Genuinely, that was one of the humiliating... Other failures is like, you didn't have like a, you know, a ceremony. Yes, exactly. (laughs) If you you leave your job, I mean, obviously, unless you're a politician, in which case there is definitely a ceremony involved. However, you know, if you leave your job because you failed at that, it's not like, you know, you made your own to get on a plane from Sweden. <laughs> exactly, and then give you a wedding present. And then you're like, that was one of the things that honestly really bothered me. I was like, do we, do I have to give our wedding presents back? Do I like pay? It was, yeah, it was, it was tumultuous. And Emma was the first person I turned to and the first person I felt able to admit to how bad things had got. And the amazing thing about Emma and our friendship is that there's no judgment. So... However, I was feeling was acceptable to her. And not only that, she said to me, I love you more now because you've been real with Mm. me and honest. And I had been very worried that she would love me less because I had failed at this scale, which is absurd now looking back because it was just, it was a really important... Feelings aren't rational. Anxieties aren't rational. And when you say them, and in hindsight, you feel like, well, I must have been a dickhead if I thought my friend wouldn't like me because I wanted to leave my husband. Like... It's a totally reasonable thing. But at the time, that's not how it feels. No, and I think I'd expended so much energy in projecting an image of having it all sorted whilst not feeling that inside. And um, it made me and Emma even closer than we already were. And she was actually the first person who called me on... She she called it the Perspex screen. There was a point where she was talking to me where she felt I was behind a Perspex Mm. screen. She couldn't get to me. And she was like, that actually really scared me. And I realised that I had to intervene. And what she was identifying was someone who was depressed but didn't recognise it herself. And so I'm very grateful to Emma for that. It was one of the most meaningful exchanges of my life. The thing is, is most people aren't that self-aware, actually. I mean, a a good level of self-awareness is literally the, the greatest characteristic a person can have. But everybody fundamentally 
isn't 100% self-aware of the way that they are. And so you do need a couple of very trusted people to be out. I remember um, my friend coming out to me uh, when I was about 17. Uh, and he would like this sort of really meaningful moment for him. And he was like, you know, I'm gay. And I was like that. Oh, yeah, I know. And he was like, what? I was like, I said, I, I, I thought you knew. <laughs> and he was like, you could have told me, Jess. <laughs> I was like, I thought you knew. <laughs> I didn't. That was so sweet. Just, of course you're gay. I was yeah. like that. I was sorry, I just <laughs> I didn't realise that was a thing. Um, but and, and definitely with mental health problems that, you know, um, and depression and anxiety mm. specifically, because anxiety is so irrational, you can only see the irrational. And, you know, you, mm. you sometimes do need somebody to march you into a, a doctor's office, basically, and say, look, because she's going to diminish this. Yes. Like, my husband, funnily enough, going back to the police statements, when I'm giving them off and he's coming in and out and making cups of tea in the kitchen, and he says I diminish the feelings. that. So I, I say, oh, you know, it's not too bad or anything. He said, but describe your worst day. Just describe the moment when that email came in saying, you know, they were going to kill you and the kids. Describe the moment of terror in that incident. Don't don't do the reflecting, mm. like you know, the reflecting practice where you're going. Oh, it's not so bad. There's people who are worse off. To, people are obsessed with the fact that there are people worse off than them. The idea that if there's people worse off than you, that means that your leg doesn't hurt when it gets broken is ridiculous. But yes. the society tells us to do that. But you do need a few trusted people to be like, do you know what? I'm not okay with how you are, even if you can't see it. Uh, and I'd say most people only have one or two of people that close to them. I do think you're so right. And actually, I just want to pick up on something you said about that sense that we constantly have to check our own privilege. Mm. I think women get that a lot. Mm. I don't see men getting it as much. No, 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 they definitely um, don't. <laughs> and actually, what I want to say to that is there is no hierarchy of suffering. Yeah. Suffering when you're in it is absolute. It's a fact. Yeah. And... I am so glad you have your husband to remind you of that fact. Yeah, because he was just like, describe your worst day. It's funny enough, it's the advice he's listened to me give to people like when they're doing their disability benefit assessment. I'm like, don't diminish the fact that some days you can't do your buttons up. And don't go, oh, mostly it's all right. Talk about mm. your worst day. Um, and when, when it's very hard to take that advice. It's very hard to advocate for yourself, actually, in re especially women. For yes. women, it is incredibly hard to advocate for yourself. It's far easier to advocate for somebody else, absolutely. Uh, and often with victims of domestic violence, I say to them, if this were your best friend, what would you tell them? Uh, and they are like, they would always be like, well, I'd say it's not your fault. I say, yes. Okay, then. Yes. Say it to yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I often use that analogy for people when they want to, when they dealing with their inner critic who's yeah. saying that they're rubbish and a failure. How would your best friend be talking to you? And that best friend for me is Emma. And actually that idea of advocating for yourself. And I know you do su such amazing work in the domestic violence sphere. I have a particular speciality in fertility yeah. and recurrent miscarriage because of the things that I have been through. And it's very hard. My personal experience is that it's very hard to advocate for yourself or even to remember who you are in the midst of all of that because you're being told by doctors you're failing to respond to drugs or you, you, we have to remove early pregnancy remains. And it's all just very distressing language. And you feel, I did anyway, I felt that I'd failed as a, yeah. as a woman. And I know that I haven't, but... I felt like that. And I remember I was in hospital over a weekend having my first miscarriage at three months. And it was Emma who I spoke to in the dead of night 
she was the person that I could call or text and say, I'm in loads of pain. And she was the one who said, ask for more pain relief. Uh, yeah. And I was like, am I allowed? <laughs> Honestly, yeah. even then I was like, are you sure I don't want to disturb the, the nurse? <laughs> she was like, ask for more pain relief. That's what they are there to do and they will appreciate that you've told them and then I did because she'd sort of given me permission and advocated for me on the other end of the phone I think that everybody needs at least one or two real advocates in their life so good for good for Emma does Emma have kids she does she's Mm -hmm. got two kids and I love and adore and how my best friend um has uh had is and is still currently going through fertility um and I I have to uh, there's like yeah. six of us uh, and we're all really close. And I have to say, I have found it the hot. So there's some of us that don't have kids out of choice. Mm. They have lots of lovely holidays in the Caribbean. Um, and, yeah. uh, and then there's lots of us who have, you know, one or two children of varying ages from sort of naught to 18. Um, and none of us, I think that the language in, in a friendship group around wanting to have a baby and not being able to has been the hardest challenge actually yeah. and we've been through uh, my, my one of our, uh, my best friends in this friendship group her baby died oh um and so we've been through terrible you know some of the worst sort of trauma and somehow we've always known the language but around fertility i fa- i have to say i have found it the hardest wow. because it's so hard yeah At, right, as a friend of somebody going through that it's wishing that they, wishing that they'd stop, and never wanting to say that because you know that that's not the right, you know that's not the right thing for them. Or, but just wanting to stop the pain, mm. wanting to stop the pain always, um, and not couching it in terms of failure all the time. Yes. Trying not to use that language. Or your own privilege as somebody who just, you know, somebody bloody looks at me, I get knocked up. Yeah. Um, I'm like... You're pregnant I'm right like, now because I'm, I'm staring at you. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, if I could get less pregnant, that would be excellent for me. You're meeting with so, the Met Police Commissioner it, 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 this morning. You yeah. just... There that's you go. It. I'm pregnant now. Um, it's like, I am that person, that, that, that toilet, uh, <laughs> that apocryphal thing that you'll get pregnant off a toilet seat. That almost certainly has happened to me. I think it is the biggest challenge and the sort of divide between people of having kids it's so, I can't help but I can't what I want to say is I wouldn't love my children any less if I hadn't given birth to them like I, I absolutely wouldn't and I know that that is a fact but I know that that's a, from a privileged position of knowing yeah. what that feels like I think the very fact that you are thinking about it in such a deep and sensitive way is what you need to do yeah. like that's thank you on behalf of I'm childless not by choice. choice and yeah. I say childless that's not a word for everyone it is for me because yeah. I don't feel child free there's a slightly different nuance child free sounds delightful to yes. me yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and child you generally you've always like wanted it going on holiday yes. it's child free <laughs> yes and I really admire people who have always known that they don't want children I'm not one of them and I've grappled with it the reason I wrote an entire chapter in Friendaholic about that language that we need when you're not having babies and all of your friends are because there are so many people who don't think about it to the level that you have and are and who say things that are deeply insensitive that you wouldn't say in other contexts. If you lived in a multi-million pound mansion, you wouldn't be going around complaining about the heating bills to a homeless person, okay? Now, that's a sort of <laughs> trivial example. You're right, but, though, yeah. But it's that thing of, obviously, being a parent is incredibly complex and difficult and hard and also joyful and extraordinary and yeah. unique. But 
Um, and, and that's completely fine to be able to have your spaces to talk about those things. And it's just about being attuned to the fact that one of your dearest friends might give anything on yeah. this earth to experience that complexity, that exhaustion yeah. and that joy. And you already are doing that. And so I, I think it's about um, being aware without being uh, being pitying. Yeah. And it's actually quite easy. <laughs> like when someone suffers a loss or when an IVF round goes wrong or not how you wanted it to, you say, I'm so sorry. And that's yeah. enough. Yeah. And But it's interesting because Emma does have two kids and she's just nailed it. I mean, I'm making Emma sound like a perfect person because she is for me. She really is. <laughs> But she um, was, she had two children, has two children, and she always finds time to make a space for our friendship mm -hmm. within that and outside of it. So for instance, when her kids were young, I would go down and visit and she would ensure that there would be half an hour every weekend where it would just be her and I for coffee. And that meant so much to me. Can and I just like, say, that's very kind that you perceived that as being good for you. That was she good for her. Said, she said that as well. She's like, I get so much from it as well. As somebody with two children, five <laughs> seconds without them, I, I understand I'm doing that thing now where, like, you know, you're, you're bragging, but, yeah, that would have been... It would have been as much for her as it was for you. Yeah, but that's interesting because not that... Uh, she was quite unique amongst my friend friendship group, and that's no shade to any of them. But in, in doing that and saying, no, I'm creating space for us because our, our friendship is just as important. And now, uh, the great thing about someone you love having children is that their children are generally... Yeah. So it's like she's created two mini kindred spirits yeah. for me. And the older they get, the more um, I get to have an independent relationship with them. And she has always also been not only respectful of what I'm going through. So sometimes she will hold herself back from talking about her children at all with me. And I have to say, please, Don't can you tell me, what, yeah, yeah. tell me what's happening with Thomas and Elsa? And but that's the way that it should be. Like, I'm able to say, actually, yeah. I really want to hear about them. Um, and she's also done that thing, which is very special to me, asking for my advice. Because even though I'm not a parent, um, she respects my advice on her children and about... Being and a parent is no qualification. Have you well, met some of them? <laughs> <laughs> I've met many people who have no children who would give excellent advice of many people who have children, I wouldn't touch with a barge pole. Yeah, but it again, it means so much to me. And the other thing that I would say is, like, when you make pregnancy announcements, just to be kind of cognizant of your friends who might be going through fertility yeah. treatments, obviously it's, it might be a very, very joyful time for you, but there are certain ways of doing it that just give space to that person. Mm. Someone else I write about in the book is my dear friend Charmaine, who got pregnant with twins at the age of 40, and she dealt with it so beautifully with me where she texted me saying, can we talk? Which strikes the fear of God into yeah. me because I hate the phone. But I was like, uh, yes. And then she called me and she's like, I wanted you to be one of the first to know because I understand what you've been through and I, I'm sure you might have conflicting feelings about this, yeah. but this is what's happened. And it was so gorgeous yeah. and left me feeling nothing but joy for her. But the truth is, is that there is a thing that comes of age in friendships, certainly female friendships, I can't speak for male friendships, where it, you are jealous of people and pretending otherwise. You're jealous when people have a good job. You're jealous when somebody, it seems like they've got everything. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, the grass is always greener and all that. There does come a time, I think, in age where people handle those things so much better in your friendship groups that you no longer feel anything but joy. And yes. there is a sort, there's a, it's sort of like, uh, you know, whether it's being happy, ha being happy in yourself is almost certainly the, the gift of that. But I, I remember, like, 
recognising a moment where for about two years I'd never felt a moment of jealousy or envy for any of my friends. I'd only either felt sorrow or joy. Um, That's uh, beautiful. That is, uh, but I, I think it comes of age. Like, do you feel do you feel jealous of people that you don't know still? Oh yes. Okay, fine. <laughs> I was like, God, I'm a terrible person. No, no, no. I feel horrendously jealous, especially when it's like, it's not fair. Like, why do you have that? That's not fair. I'm much better at that than you. You shouldn't have that. I mean, in a work environment, jealous all the time. Okay. Ditto. I'm trying to repackage it, though, as opportunity. It's like that person doing that thing really brilliantly opens up space for us as women, even yeah. though we've been told that it closes yeah. it off, but also probably identifies something that we want for ourselves. Yeah, and then yeah, actually yeah. once we've identified that and we work towards it, it's fine. Get but it. I think it's because a lot of um, successful people are also really competitive. And mm. part of being competitive is like checking out the competition. Yeah. I mean, there's the jealousy definitely inspires me. Nothing inspires me more than spite. <laughs> Do you bear a grudge? I bear terrible grudges. Terrible grudges. Oh, what star sign are you? I'm Libra. Okay. Is that a thing? Oh, that's no. Then you should be like really zen and balanced. I'm a Scorpio. We've got we're well known for our yeah. grudges. I mean, my, my I just want you to know. My son said the other day, I've met this really lovely, uh, not not in a romantic way. I've met, I met this girl. She's really nice. I think I'll, you know we're, we're going to be good mates. Trouble is, one red flag. She really loves star signs. <laughs> I thought I have raised a perfect cynic. Uh, um, you have, so, that's so good. How would you sign off your letter to Emma? Um, all my love, always. And thank you for being rock solid for me. So sometimes when I feel really unsure about the outcome of something or whether I'm doing the right thing, she will say to me, I'm rock solid for you. Aww, that's our thing. That's. I mean, and also it will be always, won't it? So the second letter was to somebody who's no longer with us. So who would that be? That is my late grandfather, Hmm? William Harpham, who uh, was an amazing, amazing man and a really influential figure in my in my life and he died during my second year at university so I had Emma then so that was good I had her to help me through that it's a one in one out uh, (laughs) celestial system it's like a nightclub just my soul every time I got pregnant funnily enough I killed one of mine or my husband's both one of mine and one of my husband's grandparents as if there was a celestial system and have they all gone there yeah no grandparents left okay so no more pregnancies no no but it did feel a little bit like Jesus now it's getting silly this trend wow killing people off (laughs) star sign it's a hashtag star sign girl but like maybe their souls were kind of re- in, in, well, we, reincarnated well, in your babies what you definitely got was that they got their middle names okay there we go <laughs> similar <laughs> down to earth reading um yeah so um part of the reason that my grandfather was so influential is because i think he taught me that uh, a man can be really kind yeah. and kindness i and integrity they're just t- two qualities that i now look for with rabid fervor and i'm extremely lucky that my husband has both of those things and reminds me in many ways of my grandfather but he was also incredibly funny and teased me a lot and he was someone who I wrote letters to a lot as a child and he was always interested in stories that I would write for him and I think having that approval and someone who was entertained by my humour and my writing was really important for me and helped me believe that I could become a writer and so I'm very grateful to him for that and he's also just got a really inspiring life story where he was born in Grimsby, he was the son of a policeman, Um, no one in his family had ever been to university, it was this terraced house 
opposite the railway, which I went to because my great auntie Gladys still lived there when I was um, a child, had an outside toilet, very modest circumstances, very modest beginnings. And he got a scholarship to grammar school. And after that, he got a scholarship to Cambridge, read wow. modern languages and became a diplomat. My God, that is quite the trajectory. It really di is. Diplomats definitely are from usually, I mean, it, it yeah. still today are from a, a, a higher Exactly, yeah. especially, yeah, as background. you're saying, like in those even, days. Yeah, now, even nowadays, you, you would still, you know, we say diplomatic brats for the kids of a diplomat. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, like army brats, yeah. Yeah, the, um, yeah it's, it definitely is a thing. Yeah, so I'm also incredibly proud of him, and he got, he worked for the League I of Nations. He had loads of cool stories. Diplomatic people always have great stories. Amazing stories, and like, it was one of them is about how he met my grandmother. So he got posted to the League of Nations in Geneva, and my grandmother was Swiss. And he was being set up with her older sister and they met, there was a group of them, they met and my grandmother was one of them and he didn't, he wasn't George's the older sister, but he did think my grandmother was pretty amazing. And she thought he was pretty amazing because he was tall. <laughs> and she... You've got to have something to go on on first <laughs> yeah. instinct. And she checked, or he checked whether she had an engagement ring and she didn't. And he, uh, anyway, to cut a very long story short, he then got posted to Cairo during the Second World War. And my grandparents conducted their love affair via letter oh. and, and telegram. And he proposed via telegram. Oh, and she gosh. accepted via telegram. And then they... I love you. Stop. I know. It's so beautiful. And then he wrote to her saying, what kind of engagement ring would you like? I like this kind of design. And she wrote to him saying, I like this kind of design. And the letters crossed and it was the same ring that they'd both... Oh, I know. my God, and it's we, like the notebook or something. It was so beautiful. And we this was not an urban myth. We found the letters after they both died. And then she had to travel across occupied Europe to be with him from Switzerland to Cairo. And they got married in Cairo Cathedral in 1948. And I have um, a cigarette case with his initials and with Cairo 1948 engraved on the inside, and it's incredibly special to me. Sorry, they got married before that because my mother was born in 1948. They got married at some point in the 1940s, and um, he became the first British ambassador to Bulgaria once the Iron Curtain had fallen. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm immensely proud of him and his legacy, and also personally speaking, he was a really important person for me. And he was very worried about my becoming a journalist because he he was like, but aren't they all parasites? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, maybe some of them. Popper is what I called him, but I'm not going to be that kind. And he never some saw... Some of all groups of people are parasites. Exactly. Some diplomats, Great no doubt. <laughs> Great point. Um, and he never saw me graduate or, or do what I do, and he's never... He never witnessed the publishing of my first book, which was, again, a lifelong ambition. And I, su I suppose I'd write to him to reassure him that it all turned out OK. Yeah. And to thank him. Yeah, I think that I, I have to deal with this a lot in uh, the sort of current hashtag me too uh, world is I, I hear um, a, a lot of people being like, oh, you know, things were different then about sort of men's attitudes. And I just think that is such a cop out. I know so many. I mean, I, I'm going to say not not my granddaddy was a philandering sexist. Mm. Uh, however, I knew loads of kind men who wanted women to be pushed forward and their granddaughters and daughters to do well and... Yeah, I just think it's a myth that those people didn't exist before. Of course they existed. Yeah, and he was so... My grandparents had an amazing marriage where they both performed very different functions. And my grandmother was this very vivacious, charming, like, through a great dinner party, just 
practical woman and he was much more kind of intellectual but they both gave each other the capacity to shine in their realms and it was just a really lovely thing to see and actually they had four granddaughters they didn't have any grandsons and I, I, I know that we all feel so supported by them in so many ways so oh how would you sign off your them. letter to your <laughs> lovely granddad then I would say darling papa I miss you and I'm so grateful for the things that you taught me and the way that you treated me. And it all turned out okay. And I just want to reassure you. <laughs> and thanks for the cigarette case. <laughs> we'll be back for the final letter after a short break. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So the, the final letter uh, is to somebody who wouldn't know what an effect they've had on your life. So who would that be? That is going to be Pat McCart, okay. the late great editor of the Derry Journal. <laughs> so <laughs> the Derry Journal. The Derry Journal. You can't hear it in my accent, but I actually grew up just outside Derry. Ah. So my dad is now retired, but he was a surgeon, a general surgeon. He got a job out there. My grandmother had been born in Belfast mm -hmm. and he got a job at Atnagelvin Hospital when I was four. And we moved out to just outside Derry, a little place called Claudie, in 1982. So I grew up with the troubles raging around yeah. me and my father doing a lot of post bomb surgery yeah. on various unfortunate people um and that was such an extraordinary and now looking back <laughs> quite a traumatic time um and i've spoken to a lot of people who grew up during that time in that particular part of the world and it feels like we're all only just coming to terms with yeah. what that was like uh, but I never picked up the accent and I never really felt that I fitted in as a result. And that's partly why I think I developed an obsession with friendship, because I so wanted to belong and I so wanted to be accepted by others. But during this time, I 
loved writing and I was writing all those stories for my grandfather and I knew that I wanted to be a journalist and then to go on to write books like I had this very kind of focused ambition and we happened to live down the road from Northern Ireland's only health farm at the time <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm stunned that such a thing exists now. Let alone. I know it was extraordinary. It was called Raspberry Hill, and it was run by this lovely. I had wonderful forgotten couple. about the concept of health farms yes. as well. It's big in the eighties and nineties. Huge they? A health farm, yes. specifically, exactly. Yes. And you would go and you would shed yeah. some pounds and yeah. do some calisthenics, and and it was run by this amazing couple, Alfie and Claire Danton, who were very kind to me and good friends of my parents. Anyway. They had a client staying called Linda Gilby, who was a really, um, she was a really well-known journalist at the time in Northern Ireland. And they said, oh, you know, we know Elizabeth wants to become a journalist. Does she want to meet Linda? And I went to meet her and she gave me brilliant advice. She was like, if you're serious about becoming a journalist, I was then, to put this into context, 12 years old. She's like, if you're really serious about it, write to every single local newspaper editor and say that you, you want to work for them. I was like, okay. And I took her at her word and I wrote to all the local newspaper editors saying, I love your newspaper. I think the one thing you're really missing is a children's columnist age 12. And I just so happen to know someone. That someone is me. And Pat McCart wrote back to me. He was the editor of the Derry Journal. He was like, I like this idea. Sounds great. Why don't you come and meet me? So because I was 12 and I couldn't drive, my mother drove <laughs> me to Pat McCart's house. It was a weekend. And... Um, and I went to meet him, and he was an incredibly kind, warm. Can I just say it's a man. very Northern Ireland story. So, is it? My father is half Northern. I, oh, there we, so, where's yeah, he from? He's from just by Derry. The idea that you know you got in your mum's car and went in a car to somebody's house, like, yes, who was the editor of the it's just, like <laughs> at the just, weekend, yeah, it's cup just, of tea. So it's it's a very it's a very yeah. Irish tale. Not a cup of tea, mug of tea. <laughs> um, and he. He did me the great honour of taking me seriously whilst also finding it quite funny. And I like that combination. <laughs> and he said, OK, well, let's give it a go. I'm going to give you a fortnightly column. I'm going to give you a fortnightly children's column. And actually, it turned out that the stuff I was writing about wasn't really children focused. And so he just like had me as a columnist. And my first column was about how there were too many Australian soap stars <laughs> dominating the pop charts. And it was something I felt very strongly about. I felt they were ruining pop music. And I had such strong opinions at 12, Jess. And ever since then, I feel like my strength of opinions has just eroded over time. And now I don't know what I think. And so I wrote this column and it appeared under my byline and it said, by Elizabeth Day, age 12. And he gave me my first job in journalism. Not only that... He gave me my first job as a columnist. Did he pay you? And he paid me. Amazing. So after I'd done about 12 of them, I got a cheque. It was totally random. I got a cheque for £78. <laughs> which for me, I was like, that's a, that's a huge then, amount of money. That would have been... It was amazing. Manner from heaven. I felt that's one of the letters I kept, actually, was not only the letter from Pat McCart saying, I think let's meet, but also the letter saying, you've been paid £78. And I went and bought a pair of DM boots. Oh, nice. And I bought some purple laces and laced them up purple laces and I just felt so amazing. Did because... you ever write about the Troubles? No, that's a really, really great question. I didn't for that paper because um, it was the Derry Journal... And quite specific. Yeah, it was quite yeah. specific. Pat McCourt. Yes. Yeah, there can, was another paper yeah. called The Sentinel, and yeah. that was quite specific too. And to be, I had to be careful what I wrote about as like an English kid yeah. at that time. So I generally wrote about pop culture. And actually, I've never really written about the troubles. I've written about them a bit in um, my book, How to Fail, and a little bit in Friend of Hollet because it gives necessary background and context. 
but for a really long time it's just been too close to me. Do you feel as well because you're English you don't have a rope? I did for ages, Mm. yes. Pat McCourt in the Derry Times, I, I feel like... Catholic. There was a clear, yes. uh, there was a clear line yeah. in that. And actually, that was another thing that, like, how lovely of him to be open-minded enough to give this like weird English kid, kid this chance. And so I feel so grateful to him for that. I really, really do. And it gave me the the taste for it. And for you know, it took me an, another thirty years to get given a column again. <laughs> so I'm very grateful. I for think that as, well. um, as somebody who like you, I mean, my maiden name is Trainer, which is a very, very common name in like Northern Megan. Ireland. Like Megan. <laughs> We're not related. Also a famous Northern Irish woman. <laughs> yeah, not sure she's from Northern <laughs> Ireland. Um, often Ian Paisley jokes that he's related to all the people called Trainer from that bit of uh, Northern Ireland. And I, I just feel like I, I never want to go on who do you think they are because I don't yeah. really want to find out that I'm related to Ian Paisley. That would be a shocker for anyone. That would be a shocker. Yeah. I don't really know that much about it uh, because my dad's dad who was from uh, Northern Ireland um, he died even before my dad was even born my nan was like six months pregnant uh, when he died but um, so I don't know all that much about my heritage but um, I very much felt a part of the troubles when I was growing up and also I grew up in the uh, shadow of the Birmingham pub bombing Um, but there is a a definite sense that um, you know people People have a right to talk about it and other people don't have a right. There's an ownership. Yeah, there is. It's quite difficult to, uh, you know, how you feel about it and things. In the wake of the Birmingham pub bombings, we were, you know, there was real risk to us as being mm. like having an Northern Irish name that you could look up in the book and in fact one of the IRA had the same surname as us so uh, yeah so and when I was a kid at school because in, in Birmingham everybody is Irish <laughs> literally yeah. I mean you you either have heritage in Ireland Pakistan Bangladesh or the West Indies those those yeah. are the options if yeah. you live in Birmingham and uh, you know the common refrain being like my dad's in the IRA when we were in the playground at school so you grew up it was a mm. constant thing in our childhood but yeah and I think that the Derry Girls thing has I mean oh, that must so have been amazing age. for amazing. you because it is literally the period when you were growing up there so all of totally. the all of the uh, cultural references yes. I found that I was like that. oh my god yeah. they go just all, take that concert exactly all of the cultural <laughs> references all of the music and James the weird English cousin again I was like oh my god it's definitely something that the older I've got and again probably because of all the activism that I feel like the younger generation have really educated me in like from the Me Too movement onwards I've just realised that I do actually have a right Mm. to tell a story that is mine and it's only ever going to come from an individual viewpoint. And so I could write about what it was like being English at that time mm. without claiming any sort of ownership. living in, in Derry. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I it was... it was really quite specific. Formative, as yeah. you can imagine. And, I, and it also made me aware of the power of language because even Derry itself, as everyone knows, yeah, yeah. slash city, like, if you called it Londonderry, you were making a political statement. If you called it Derry, it was more colloquial, but it also had kind of ramifications. Like it just it, everything, every word yes. that you used had to be so carefully judged. The, the trouble is now is that I don't believe, uh, having been to Derry many, many times, uh, post troubles, everybody just calls it Derry. Only politicians yes. on the telly call it Derry, London, Derry. Literally, yeah, exactly. Everybody Every, just calls exactly. it Derry. Exactly. Regardless it's true. And therefore, if you call it background. London Derry, you're making a real point, and so you, you, just don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> have, um, I have a copy of the statue of the um, crane in uh, Belfast on my do desk. Do you, Harland and Wolf? To remind me never to forget 
the people of Northern Ireland because I think that often it's slightly better now, um, but often they are ill represented in I the agree. Houses of Parliament. Anything I'm doing, I think how I'm going to make sure that this helps the people of Northern Ireland as well, just because of my my uh, heritage. Well, thank you. Uh, don't don't forget them. Don't ever forget yeah. them because they are uh, we have responsibility for them too. So how would you sign off your letter to to Pat? I would say. Pat, thank you so much for giving me a chance a all those years ago. And I don't know if you agreed with me about Australian pop stars. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to see the chance, but I'm forever grateful. And you really shaped the course of my life in ways that you can't even imagine. So thank you. From the weird English kid, Elizabeth Day, <laughs> age 12. I really hope, because like if I think yourself, I think of um, Sally Hughes, Caitlin Moran, these sort of like teenagers who just yeah. on a bloody Hail Mary wrote to somebody and then ended up as teenage writers. Like it's just it's absolutely phenomenal that that was able to exist. I hope that that can still exist now. I hope oh, I there's hope some so plucky kid writing in to, you know, The Guardian today being like, I tell yeah. you what, I'll write a thing. Is TikTok dominating the charts? Maybe that's the thing <laughs> <laughs> that you could write about. Brilliant. Well, Elizabeth, <laughs> it has been a total joy to talk to you. Thank you Ditto. so much for coming on. And uh, I'm sure this won't be the last time we'll be on podcast together in the future. I so hope let's make not. it like an every five yearly uh, yes. situation. I'll remind you anytime that your husband's really nice. <laughs> like, yeah, that Thank would be you. Excellent. I've loved chatting to you as ever. It's Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you click the follow button now on the app where you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod, and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This has been an Audio Always original.